Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about resentment. I think a good starting point is to talk about how we feel resentment on a personal level. Yeah. What do you think about that, Laura? Do you think that people experience resentment as a discrete kind of emotional experience or do they experience it as part of a cluster of emotions? Is it something that they can easily pinpoint? I kind of have two separate types of resentment that I can identify in my own emotional landscape. Uh, One is like a, a resentment, like a cultural resentment about the expectations that have been forced upon me because I'm a woman, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like the cultural expectations of being a woman. And even beyond that, the expectations from my parents or family or even like peers that I, that I should have realized more success, like Mm. economic success by this point. Right. Especially since I invested so much in my education and unpaid labor, (laughs) you know, (laughs) So I feel a certain kind of economic resentment. Uh, I feel a certain kind of societal resentment because I don't identify with the expectations that are felt outside of my own personal values. I do also feel a different level of resentment with my own like interpersonal relationships. And it also might be expectation based, but I think there's a lot of ego Mm -hmm. involved. Ego is all obviously also like a big player in in my resentment on a societal level because I'm like I'm better than that <laughs> like I don't have to wear heels to be attractive but at the same time I feel a lot of shame that I I don't look that that way hmm. and you know I feel a lot of ego that I didn't fit in in a corporate environment so I peaced out <laughs> and then in in terms of relationships as well, it's it's also an ego thing. You don't realize your flaws and you don't realize that you can put strain on other people. <laughs> and then when they put strain on you, you resent them. You know, it's like a wear and tear thing. It's like not one mistake that someone's made. It's like a constant thing that you struggle with. Mm-hmm. In the same way that like societal expectations are a constant. It's like a white noise. It's like tinnitus. A constant thing that you have to to grapple with. And resentment, I think, is a, a slowly developing reaction to unrealistic expectations. Whether it's a, a huge scale, like you're not the only victim. Or whether it's someone who gets really pissed off if you leave dirty dishes in the sink. I feel resentment around labor tremendously. I always have since I was little. I have a really long fuse about a whole host of things. But when people ask me to do more work than I can really hold well under my belt, I just explode with resentment. It is constantly a slow-burning rage. (laughs) I think that... I really loathe being overworked and undercompensated, and I particularly resent it when men ask me to do more than they're doing or than they would ever be willing to do themselves. I think that there is a really intense connection between labor and the feeling of resentment that becomes rage or anger 
Um, and it, I think resentment, you're right, because it's a slow burn, it can become very volatile because it's always there wearing away at your ability to manage it. I think that a lot of people also feel resentment about their interpersonal relationships, although I have less of that. I, I don't have that as much. And part of it, I think, is because it's indexed by social power. And I have a lot more social power now than I did when I was 12, when I would have been, when I was really resentful and very angry. But I have more social power and I have more social tools to manage uh, interpersonal relationships now and to weed out the ones that are just taking more than they give or that really lack reciprocity or that are in any way exploitative interpersonally. I just don't do that. So for me, even as a young person, it was always very easy for me to just cut out relationships. And I'm still that way. If it becomes clear to me that you cannot do reciprocity, there is no future for us to collaborate or build anything. And I, I have no interest in that. I guess it's also sort of different for me because I guess there's some ego around labor, I guess, but mostly I think the older that I've gotten, the more that I've been able to kill my ego actually. And so I will assume my responsibility for my part of the agency in a relationship to a very high degree while also being clear about the boundaries of other people's issues. Like that's their shit, not my shit. It's their baggage, not my baggage. It's very easy for me to see that as I've gotten older. So I don't have a lot of interpersonal relationship resentment about people that are in my life because I cut them out. I do, however, think a lot about political strands of resentment. And I feel like that has been a really huge conversation since the election um, in terms of trying to contextualize this hyper-masculinist moment. So for me, I see all of these grieving Hillary supporters who just so totally misread the political climate and they want to read gender bias as the major frame when really I think it's a total and complete inability to understand how labor fundamentally abuts rights. And so all they want to do is talk about rights without fundamentally understanding how labor works. And the right wants to talk about labor to the exclusion of rights. And the labor is going to win because that's how people feed their families. And I think that that inability to read that frame leads to pussy hats and marches, but it doesn't lead to systemic social change. And so we focus on the politics of resentment instead of the policies that actually create inequality. Resentment has been historically overrated as a, a political mode of operation. Totally agree with that. So, you know, like Karl Marx and Lenin, both, they predicted a communist rev revolution because the working class was so, the working class was so exploited in Russia and obvious, obviously in any modernized economy at that time. Uh, so they predicted a full scale communist revolution because the resentment of the working class was massive. But what happened instead was that a lot of people were slaves to their wage. They had no other way to feed their family. And initiating a revolution would terminate their means of survival and in some ways their personhood because yeah. a lot of people's identities are tied to their, their labor. Totally. There is an ideology of working hard and making it earned wealth. There's a lot of resentment 
about figures of authority that you feel are controlling your life. But if you become wealthy, there's a, I don't know, you have a halo yeah. in some sense. Like you earned it and you worked hard for it. And so you're like expunged. Yeah. And it means justified the end. Right. I mean, I just, I feel like resentment, especially when it's surrounding labor, is exists because there's such a fetishizing of overwork, which is one of the reasons I started playing with that notion of the leaning back. Because I, I don't, I, I like doing intellectual work. I like the public part of being a public intellectual. I love the writing. I like the teaching. I love the public lecturing. But I don't like the technologizing of the labor. And I think that this moment is one where liberals refuse to read Trump as a master of techne or of, of technologies of power. They want to read him as an authoritarian, as a fascist, which is just super lazy. And on the one hand, I like that because at least they're like, hey, let's not do Nazi Germany again. And I'm glad that they're aware of it and the veins of which authoritarianism links itself to capitalism. And that's a useful conversation. But at the end of the day, I think that's just a really gross misread of what's happening with Trump. And it seems to me that he is able to tap into that anger as a way of harnessing emotional populism to radically restructure the state. And I think I think that makes that is a thing that makes sense to a lot of people because the state is very unknowable. It's giant, it's sprawling, it doesn't make a lot of sense, it's contradictory, the agencies are massive, regular people cannot understand how policies are made, and there's a sense by which I think that he is harnessing capital to try and make the state more legible. This is not an endorsement of him, per se. I just think that people are reading his impetus wrong. I think that they're ascribing malice where I don't really think that there's malice. There's definitely incompetence in his cabinet staff. They're a bunch of white supremacists. All of that is true. But at the end of the day, I think that the goal is to make the state smaller and more legible. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, either good or bad. I just, that's the thing that's happening. And so I'm very curious about all of this pop and scholarly conversation about the politics of resentment driving his presidency. And that's not to say that regular people don't resent lots of stuff. They do. Poor people maybe resent things more or or less, but it seems to me fundamentally understandable that a lot of people resent the state. And that's a problem in a welfare state because the welfare state is also what delivers the services. Modern politics, at least it seems to me, completely used political resentment as a crutch. Yeah, but look, here's but you've got somebody like Hillary Clinton who's trying to harness the power of black and brown and female resentment while coming from a space of total and complete privilege as an extension of hyperpatriarchy. It's very hard for me to swallow Hillary Clinton as a feminist extension of Bill Clinton in some transformative, new, progressive way. That is not a thing. Well, no one read her as a resentment candidate, which is why she couldn't win. Right. Well. <laughs> right. Obama was a resentment candidate. Trump was a resentment candidate. I mean, those kinds of things mobilize voters. I disagree. I think that Hillary Clinton herself was a source of resentment. I think she was the source of the thing, of the emotional field. She herself produced discourses about resentment. I think 
that it is totally reasonable to think that Donald Trump waited for her to run again and ran against her knowing that she would not be able to harness the affective field emotionally in a way to win. And she's also this extension of of Bill Clinton, who himself just creates tremendous amounts of resentment in the GOP. Like they are they are engines of it. In some ways, I'm really curious to see how the Trump administration decouples the move that the Democratic Party has made to the right. Because within the Democratic Party, progressives also resent the Clintons. So the Clintons are generating resentment within the party and without. without. That's why she lost. But liberals can't see that, right? Because they were over-identified to this object of attachment, right, that they could not see was damaging and harmful. That isn't to say that she's not proficient technically as a policy wonk. That's to say that she, her ego also, overdetermined the kind of space that she took up that pr- created resentment in the political field. And people could not read that. It's funny that we're, we're recording this today because it popped up on my Facebook time, time hop today from this day in 2016. And my status a year ago today was, um, all I'm saying is that there is no way Hillary Rodham Clinton can be Trump, period. And so, of course, I shared that memory, and I was like, it might be instructive for you to all read all of the trolling comments that you posted a year ago. But even then, it was very clear to me that the blind spot for the Democrats was their inability to read how their own elitism and insularity and cliquishness and circling the wagons around the Clintons, despite their tremendous political flaws, was a silver bullet (laughs) in her campaign. Yeah. And so as I'm thinking about resentment now, what I don't like is the class frame that makes poor white people, especially into these caricatures of um, negative affect with no generative object. Like the reason that white people who are poor have resentment is because of their relationship to labor that's a real thing. And what what happened was we had a candidate now, Trump, who understood technology and he understood the media in ways that appealed to them that Democrats could not even entertain. They couldn't read it as legible. It didn't have any basis in what the history of their academic study had yielded about how the presidency was secured. And so because they could not read his use of techne, they failed to read him as a viable candidate. And so now the resentment politics have in some ways imploded, right? So now you have all this resentment at Donald Trump for what? Holding up a mirror to the liberals' inability to move the ball forward and to really do the kinds of progressive work that they say that they actually embody. So instead they do identity politics. They don't actually do class work. If you're reading any of, especially in Jacobin, um, Adolph Reed was writing great stuff. Touré Reed was writing great stuff last year, all about the liberals' embrace of identity politics to the exclusion of their ability to understand how poor people relate to work. That was correct. They were correct about that. And Bernie Sanders understood that. 
I'm not saying that he could have won, but he understood the relationship between resentment and labor in the same way that Trump did. He just didn't have necessarily the best techne about it. Although he did, he made some moves. I certainly, I've written and talked a lot about his embrace of hip hop culture and, and a bunch of other technologies of the moment. But at the end of the day, who does white male rage better, the left or the right in America? It's always been the right. In Latin America, it's the left. It's important to kind of identify resentment as a huge mobilizing element in politics. And the right has been so successful because their dominant narrative is economic. Yeah. Right? Right. So they play on people's economic resentment. And I don't know, that's their stomping ground. The Democratic Party has publicly been very progressive on social issues. They've identified themselves in that way, but they're not a a defender of economic (laughs) security for all of these people. I don't, I mean, in a giant broad stroke, that's, that's kind of true. I mean, it's true that LBJ pushed a bunch of civil rights bills. It's true that he did that to the exclusion of the Great Society because all the money went into Vietnam. But it's not true that that narrative breaks down at Clinton, which is the irony of the Clintons, that, that Bill Clinton moved the party to the right. He moved it right on social issues and ceded all that rights ground and talked about jobs a bunch. And the same thing is true about Barack Obama. I mean, yes, he did some civil rights-ish things, But at the end of the day, what Trump is doing is creating a more legible state apparatus to undermine political resentment at his party. And this is a whole, I worked for Steve Forbes years ago on the flat tax for a brief amount of time for money, obviously not because I ideologically believed in it. The whole point of the flat tax is like simplify the code. You pay 10%, everybody pays 10%. That's extremely legible to low in information voters, which let's face it, all of America is. And so I think that when I look at Trump, people like him, not because they want to be his friend or they think he's a good person. He reads as completely legible. And this moment has become, it's a hyper-masculine political moment. Hillary Clinton could not do the masculine and she couldn't bridge the masculine and the feminine. And as, as her rhetoric skirted around identity issues, it felt off, which is why there was so much conversation about her being inauthentic. She could not read or ride the moment in which she was a presidential candidate. And I wrote this the day after the election. I'm like, Hillary Clinton lost not because she's a woman, but because of the kind of woman she is. She lost because of who she is. She is Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton lost the election. That doesn't mean another woman would have lost. I think that that's a misread. But this catapulting into this hyper-masculinist field is all about changing what the giant state apparatus looks like. And in some ways, I think, you know, you were talking earlier about the relationship between resentment and empathy. And this is a radically anti-empathetic moment. But it is also one that might shift away from identity politics. In another way, too, I'm really fascinated about all these revelations about these Trump officials in Russia, as somebody who writes about and, and teaches about the Cold War. Because I'm like, what if the deal is that you know, Donald Trump is going to find, finally end the discourse of the Cold War. Is there value in that? Are we just going to demonize the Russians for forever and be like any contact with them is bad? I mean, it, yes, of course, perjury is not good, right? And a confirmation hearing. 
So that's a legal question. But in terms of an ideological understanding of what the U.S.'s relationship with Russia looks like, is there not room to think about <laughs> what it might look like to not do containment? I think that there there is. I don't know what it's going to end up looking like. But in these moments of tectonic emotional shifts and political shifts, there are opportunities. And there are opportunities that are both created and that are foreclosed upon. Do you think that this moment is a rupture of empathy and resentment? I'm just thinking about what happens when people feel like they've been wronged. Because that's fundamentally what resentment is. Resentment is when people feel like they've been wronged mm-hmm. and they have to ameliorate the wrong. That's why it's a mobilizing emotion. I agree that resentment is a shared sentiment and that it's mobilized this political moment in a very obvious way. But you're right to bring up that it doesn't jive with empathy. It's a, a selfish impulse. Resentment is bred on, you know, I've been disadvantaged and you fail to see politically that other people are disadvantaged too. Like you're a white man and you're poor and you fail to see that other people face worse outcomes. You have a lot of privilege just because of your race and you don't have class privilege, but other people face the same kind of obstacles. There's this like blindness in resentment. Okay, but here's the thing. Donald Trump's plan is to totally reorient power in the state. That diffuses resentment. So the irony is that I think that if he can fix health care in some way that people that's legible, like if Donald Trump were to pass single payer, he would win re-election forever because that's legible. If he were able to do that, it would be legible and understandable and it would have bipartisan support and he would win the thing. And I just don't think that liberals understand that their resentments translate into the kinds of opinions of them that create the backlash against their institutions. You know, it's like I do trainings with liberals all the time and I'm like, you're like, why do the Republicans do this? Why do they do this? And I'm like, because you are a bunch of uppity assholes in your ivory towers. You don't know anything about what other different kinds of people are doing or thinking or feeling or what their struggles are. You're so out of touch. That's a real thing. That is a real fundamental thing. And insofar as liberals are unable to read how resentment against them emerges, they will continue to fall victim to political plans that are about making the state more legible, even if it's less equal. Because they because the GOP is to some degree committed to demystifying power. And so liberals rush to call that authoritarianism. And it's not like there aren't authoritarian, you know, imp- impulses that are part of that. Or it, that's not to say that authoritarianism might not flavor the restructuring of the state. But to just wholesale dismiss the Trump administration as a totalitarian dictatorship is so reckless and ridiculous. And it's just part and parcel of their inability to understand how political resentment works. If Trump can ameliorate some of it, he is going to be read as a successful president, period. And the Democrats cannot bridge that gap between work and rights. And in this moment that's hyper-technologized, rights look different. And the Democrats are going to continue to cling to this mid-20th century idea of equality in a way that is not going to be legible 
in the emergent technologized new nation state. And they're, conti- they're going to continue to get crushed at the polls because they are misreading the moment as fundamentally authoritarian when it's fundamentally technological. They should rebuild a party on the notion of technology. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered that, but I think that's uh, very perceptive. I mean, how, how do you mobilize resentment? A lot of the, the, the current climate blames institutions it blames the establishment but that's Um, not wrong it's not wrong to blame those institutions those institutions fail all the time right yeah Yeah. i don't disagree with that uh people feel a a personal affront with the establishment like they've been personally wronged they have we have one of the highest rates of infant mortality highest rate of, of maternal mortality tremendous food insecurity joblessness, stagnant wages, inflation, no pensions. There are reasons to be pissed that the state has failed a whole truckload of people. I mean, it is just, it's unfathomable for me to be able to look at the American nation state and think, oh, this is going really well. (laughs) Everybody's doing great. And the thing is, is that I actually object to your characterization of Obama as a resentment candidate because he was doing traditional 1960s liberalism. Hope for change. He was harnessing sads, maybe. But resentment? No way. All that soaring language, it was all transcendentalist, transcendence. It did not look the same. It did not I guess look the I same. read Obama and Bernie Sanders in kind of a similar light. And Bernie Sanders is, I also read as a resentment candidate. Yeah, yeah. Bernie Sanders is a resentment <laughs> candidate. It, Bernie Sanders was the left's answer to Trump. For sure. And if the U.S. wasn't such a poor space with such authoritarian tendencies, and if there had been any kind of space to discuss socialism seriously for the last 150 years, he would have probably won. If he were a candidate in, like I said, like a Latin American banana republic, Bernie Sanders is your guy because they fundamentally understand revolutions based on class that are about labor which is what all of the Marxists and neo-Marxists and socialists were writing about during his candidacy. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't problems with his candidacy, but I think the people who were writing the smartest analysis of the Sanders candidacy were clear that the identity politics of the Democratic Party were bust and were destroying the party. That's also not to say that you can't acknowledge racism and sexism and heterosexism and classism and all the other intersectional politics as part and parcel of what makes the structure of American democracy so complicated. But I think the thing that is striking to me or is a canary in the coal mine is this conversation about safe spaces and snowflakes. That's super interesting to me rhetorically to think about safety as a liberal obsession especially for poor people who don't identify as liberals. So the notion of safety as an institutional space versus the safety of the gun is a place where liberals also cannot read the discursive field in which they are participating. The reason that all you have all of these gun bills and why the NRA is so powerful is because the gun is a, it's a much more legible symbol of the technology of safety than the classroom is, especially in a country that has devalued education for so long. It's odd to me, though, that that safety is so divorced from privacy. 
in order to achieve safety oh, yeah. on on any kind of state level, any kind of legislative level. There is some kind of sacrifice of privacy. To me, like safety and privacy are like intertwined. And so it's kind of weird to me how they're divorced in, in legal. But th- again, this is an issue of labor because for the gun, the gun is connected to not privacy, but property. Castle doctrine, stand your ground. All of that is about using the gun to protect your property, which has an interiority and a history. I mean, there's dozens of architectural studies of how homes have developed private places, you know, since the Victorian era as a way of understanding where you hide your property. That is not what the liberals understand. And so it's like fundamentally, they're two totally different discursive fields that are being mobilized at the same time that the liberals cannot read simultaneously. And property is now more important to men than ever because they're losing control in all of these different ways, right? They're losing political power. They're having to give up some of their privilege. Privilege. But they and are so and they aren't. Having having property and protecting that property and being controlling in in whatever sense that possible has now become a motivating factor for a lot of men but it always has been that's the thing i mean it's true that that america is browning and it's becoming more brownish has more brownish people in it and it will continue to do so and so there's part of me that argues a lot publicly about how in some ways this backlash cycle this resentment cycle is one of the last dying gasps of what consolidated white male power will look like which is why it's such a hyper masculine moment and why Hillary Clinton could never have been the mistress or the master of this moment. And also, part of me wonders if that's really the case. I mean, if you think about where the Democratic Party is doing well, it's it's in places like New Mexico where they have all of these Latinx, you know, activists that have become politicos that are building grassroots things, you know, all kinds of structures that redistribute power in ways that are transformative and progressive and almost all of those are around labor they're around workers rights and wages as they always have been and that is the model forward so it's like you know i get asked to talk about intersectionality all the time and i'm like you know i i need you to think about strawberries and i need you to think about what happens to the cost of your bananas if we build a wall (laughs) you know like what happens when you alienate Latinx citizens, residents, and workers from their labor even further, because that's a technological move that will have tremendous consequences for white consumers, but also for what political power looks like, especially in agricultural centers Um, and in places where, you know, Latinx residents are a larger portion of the population. And that's going to look very different. And so there's going to be a new politics of resentment that is around the technologies surrounding food and transportation and mobility in ways that we have not seen before. And that's why when I'm thinking about the Democratic Party today, it's like they should reinvent themselves as the party of technology. Here's how we will harness technology to improve the lives of everybody in the country. And this is how we're going to distribute technology. And this is how we're going to safeguard it. And this is, this is how we're going to use it to distribute resources and rights and whatever else. That would be the move. 
But I don't think it's going to happen because Democrats are so entrenched in the identity politics of the mid 20th century that they can't even recognize that the moment calls for a new techne. And so, you know, I'm glad that we have been talking about resentment because I think that it's an important part of these backlash cycles. But I am very wary about reducing the moment just to the political feeling associated with the illegibility of the political climate. I like that you say that because I think the Democratic Party would be better to focus on uh, economic advancement and not the and not economic resentment. There's been a lot of political action around resentment recently, and it's all been <laughs> a failure. Yes, we have Brexit now. We've got Donald Trump now. The Arab Spring was uh, largely built on an economic resentment. The Middle East is a, as totalitarian as ever. Egypt, they're free of Mubarak, but their leader now is a military, <laughs> is a lifelong military leader. Uh, and Turkey, which seemed like a, a progressive oasis, is suffering under uh, Erdogan's aggressively authoritarian policy. Well, I'm saying, so, I think I think Erdogan is, is, is the same kind of politico as Trump. I think that they are the closest analogs. They are willing participants in a different kind of technological worldview. They actually see capital in a fundamentally similar way. They see immigration as an illegible political field. The same thing with Brexit. Same thing with Turkey. I mean, the conversation about immigration is totally illegible. It has to change. We might not agree about what that looks like, but but the field of the problem for the GOP is extremely clear-cut. It's extremely clear-cut that the state is failing to create a coherent immigration policy. And so that's a space for a solution. If the Democrats had a better sense of techne, they would have things to say about that, but they don't. So they will be the party of anti-Trump, and it will it will not win them back the midterm elections. And the resentment of the pussy hat wearing cat ladies is not going to flip power back in the Senate. And their phone calls, while useful in generating some political pressure, are not going to change the political makeup of America because they fundamentally do not understand how technology works. And about how technology can be harnessed to really reimagine the nation state as something that can be built and rebuilt for better aims than just winning back some local rights that have been lost since Citizens United. There just needs to be such a total reconceptualization of power. And so I don't want to collapse into the politics of feeling for feeling's sake as the only way to read the moment or to brush away the failure of the Democratic Party to offer a real candidate who had real ideas. At best, Hillary Clinton had some stopgap, you know, policy. She had no big plan. She had nothing that made this nation state more legible. She didn't have a sense of social power that ameliorated people's concern over an economy that's still lagging. You can look at those job numbers. Almost all of them are minimum wage jobs, and they're second jobs for people. They aren't, it's not like Barack Obama's economic recovery from the Bush years 
created some engine of economic growth. And you can also make the claim, oh, well, you know, the Bush administration hampered him or Congress hampered him. All of that is true, and yet it did not happen. So, yes, you're going to have people who are super upset by the fact that now it's been 16 and a half years of economic decline in a way that they feel when combined with inflation. So mm-hmm. somebody's going to have to fix that. And for somebody like Trump, who's used to being CEO and the head honcho, he's going to do it with unilateral executive power, which is also the most legible thing for most of the people in America. And if the Democrats cannot understand that, they're going to get destroyed in the midterm elections. And it's going to come as a huge surprise to them. I like that you're talking about legibility because I do think that our economic progress under Obama is not legible to a lot of Americans. It's also not real. Yeah. Yeah. It's also not real. Yeah. Job numbers are based on people who actively seek employment. So there are a ton of people who are like pissed off. They haven't been able to find a job and they're not a part of the employment rate. Right. right? So the real unemployment could be, it could be very high because a lot of people are out of the job, out of the labor market because they feel like it's a waste of time. When Trump got elected, I was devastated. And and I spoke to my parents about it. And they were like, well, the stock market is as high as it's ever been. And I like almost flipped my lid because I was like, what does that mean to most people? I have a very small sum invested. And so good. The stock market is up. But for most people, that means nothing. Like, what percentage of investment in the stock market is connected to people who are already fine? The top 20% of income earners, you know? So the stock market has no real connection to most people's economic lives. The people in America are looking for something bigger than that. The middle class is looking to safeguard their investments. But the majority of Americans want a different idea of what it means to feel American and about what it means to work and what you can expect on the outside of that work. What do you get when you retire? Do you get to retire? I mean, I think that the biggest place where the showdown is going to be among traditional Democrats and Republicans from this point forward is going to have to be Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid. ACA expansion and retirement are going to be the places where the GOP under Trump is going to sink or swim because that's ultimately where the largest number of people in this baby boomer generation have invested their energy. And so if Trump destroys that and cannot imagine a new way of transforming that capital into a different sense of what it means to be an American, I think that's where his own limitations endanger his presidency. That's an opportunity for the Democrats. But if he does well there, he'll be a two-term president and America is going to look very different on the other end of it. As I'm listening to the talking heads of the Democratic Party, especially in the Senate, they have no clue. <laughs> They're just the party of anti-Trump. And it's not going to get them anything. Because at least when the GOP was the party of anti-Obama, they were building the Tea Party, which was a huge grassroots movement of well-educated, certainly compared to the average voter, moneyed organizers across the states who wanted a different vision of America. Let's see the Democratic Party do that. It's not that resentment itself is necessarily a toxic political emotion, 
But the other end of it has got to be grassroots organizing and it's got to be based in class politics. And that can be class and race and class and sex and class and geography. But it has to be the class part first because when people have money, it's hard to discriminate against them socially with policy. <clears throat> Which is, I think, what certainly what, you know, the neo-Marxists would say today. But when I think about political resentment in this particular political moment, I think it absolutely comes down to fetishizing work and the relationship between work and national identity and the relationship between national identity and the body politic. And if we have a healthy national economy, we have a healthy body politic, and it will erase all of the scandal and all of the criticism and all of the bureaucratic fuck-ups and all of the mediocrity and all of the other you know, chaotic elements of the transitional Trump team, and it will produce a different kind of technological nation that looks very different than a mid-century, mid-20th century, you know, pluralistic liberal democracy, and that people need to prepare themselves for it.